The scripture reading this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 35. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who laid hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. By His knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again, tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways, for the, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. This is the word of the Lord. You know, we, uh, we are all of God's creatures, I guess you could say, uh, create things. I mean, you have... Um, Birds create nests, bees create beehives, ants create all those ant mounds in your yard with all those tunnels underneath the ground. And obviously we create things, we create, you know, cars and cell phones and different things like that, but is that all we're meant to create or does God want us to create something beyond that or more than that or in addition to that? And I think He does. I think looking at this passage and throughout the Scripture, I think God wants us to create a culture of life. And another way to describe this would be to say that God created us to seek peace and pursue it. And if you look at Proverbs 3.17, the author of Proverbs here is describing the benefits of godly wisdom. And when he gets to verse 17, he says that her ways, meaning godly wisdom, when you have godly wisdom... Her ways are pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Now, the word peace here is a word word filled with meaning beyond that which is normally captured by the English word peace or our understanding of peace. The Hebrew word for peace is one you probably know. If you know any Hebrew at all, you probably know this word. And it's the Hebrew word shalom. And this is how one scholar defines the concept of shalom. He says, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, 
fulfillment and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. In English, we call it peace. But it means far more than just peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as the Creator and Savior opens doors and speaks welcome to the creatures in whom He delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. The way things are supposed to be. It's universal flourishing, wholeness, delight. And verse 17 tells us that the paths of godly wisdom are shalom. In other words, if you and I want to experience the shalom of God individually and as a community, then we must walk the paths of wisdom, of godly wisdom. Now, what does this look like? I think there are two main parts to experiencing the shalom of God and exercising the shalom of God to the world. The first part, and the most fundamental part, is establishing peace with God. You know, first you need to be at peace with God before you're able to really exercise the shalom of God and seek it for the world. So first we must establish the peace with God. However, the problem is that the Bible clearly teaches that we're not at peace with God. You know, the Bible teaches that we're actually enemies of God in His kingdom. In other words, by nature, we are consumed with ourselves and with worshiping any and everything but the one true God. And if you, and if you know your heart, you know that describes us pretty well. And the Bible also tells us, though, that God so loved the world, even in its broken state, in its rebellious state, He loved you, He loved me, He loved the world, that He gave His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We can be at peace with God. So the only way for you and me to have peace with God is through faith in Jesus Christ, His Son. And once we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, then we have access to the wisdom of God, And we can allow that to flow through us into the world. And so as we submit ourselves to God and to His Word, we are challenged to approach those around us in a way that actually creates life. And we're going to talk about what that looks like based on this proverb. So the first part is we must establish peace with God. And we know that only comes through Jesus Christ. There's nothing we can do or say or be that puts us in a right relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. He is the way to be at peace with God through His life, death, and resurrection. The Bible clearly teaches that. Through Jesus, we can be at peace with God. And now, once you're in Christ though, how do we live out this peace and pursue it and promote it in the world? Well, we, get, we have two, at least two practical ways to uh, create this culture of life that is consistent with the shalom of God in chapter 3 of Proverbs. The first is that we should, it's very simple, sounds simple anyway, 
In verses 27 and 28, we should help our neighbor. Not surprising. Pretty simple. Verses 27 and 28 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again tomorrow. I'll give it when you have it with you. You These verses are are similar to Jesus' teaching about the Good Samaritan. You know, we, we serve a generous God who has done all that is required for us to know Him and to become the people that He wants us to be. And as the, the generosity of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ absorbs, absorbs more and more into your life, the more generous you become. Now, this is why we see godly wisdom is telling us that if a neighbor is in need, then we should meet that need if, if we are able. And what is interesting here in verse 17 is that it literally means, and you can translate it this way, that we should not withhold good from its owners. And maybe some of your translations say that, or maybe it's in a marginal note. And that's why in the ESV it even says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. Which is interesting when you think about it. One scholar said it this way. Listen to how he puts it. He says, if you have good you can do for somebody then legally you own it. So I I believe God is is in support of private property. Okay, So uh, if you have good that you can do for someone, then you legally own it, but morally they own it. It's interesting. Legally you own it, but morally they own it. In other words, if you have good that you can do for a neighbor in need, and it's in your power to do it, and you don't do it, legally it's yours, morally it's theirs. And we should seek to meet that need. So let me, let me share an example that may, may clear this up just a little bit. When I was at Clemson uh, as a student, I lived in a campus apartment with two of my friends. And one of my friends had this girlfriend that he had met on this summer mission project. And so she would come to visit And when she would come to visit, she would come in and just help herself to anything in our kitchen. She would eat our food, drink our milk. And as you know, as a college student, you know, we just, we did not have, I didn't have a huge college budget for food, right? So I knew if my food was missing. So finally, we got to the bottom of it and figured out where's all our food going. And we found out my roommate's girlfriend's eating it. And so, um... And I was, you know, I actually saw my my room, my college roommate last year at the uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. Ran into him, and uh, he actually went on to marry this girl, and they're still married and serving a church up in uh, Michigan. So anyway, we find out she's eating our food and she's drinking our beverages, and we're we finally told her. We said, you know, if you want something to drink, or if you want something to eat, I mean, at least ask for it. Just at least ask us for it. Don't just help yourself to whatever you want. And you know what her response was? Well, it's all the Lord's. (laughs) Now, what do you say to that? 
It's like, you know, it's true, it is all the Lord's, but the Lord also says, do not steal. <laughs> so, yes, in a way, you're right. So, on the one hand, yes, she should have asked before she takes my food. But on the other hand, I should be generous. And if you're thirsty or hungry, I should give you the food, right? But at the same time, she can't demand that I give her the food. But at the same time, if I have tasted of the generosity of God and she has a need, I should give her some of my milk or my cereal or whatever I had, ramen noodles. There wasn't much. So even though you know she can't demand it, I should be willing to give it if I have it in order to meet the need. That generosity uh, is what helps create this culture of life that we're talking about. It helps promote this shalom the shalom of God. And as you exercise that type of generosity and you help your neighbor in need, it just gives them a taste of the shalom of God, the peace of God, who God is, the love of God, the generosity of God. It's, it's a way of uh, having God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. It's just giving a little glimpse of that, a little taste of that when we help our neighbor that way. And this is the type of flourishing we want to pursue. So the first way we can practically uh, create a culture of life is by helping our neighbor if they have a need. Uh, Second way is by um, planning for the good of our neighbors. Uh, Look at verses 29 and 30. The writer of Proverbs says, Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you, Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. One writer summarized the verses this way. He said, negatively, do not be a fault-finding, critical person ready to pounce on some well-meaning individual with a gotcha. That is a culture of death. And this is the culture in which we live in. You know, we should not be a people who... Who, is all, who are always looking at people to, in order to find their faults and try to tear them down. You know, we should not be a people who are, who are always looking for the kink in the armor to take a shot. That's a culture of death. Culture of life does not plan evil for your neighbor, but rather we actually do the opposite. So if we are not to plan evil for our neighbor then we should plan for their good. Right? We we should not plan evil for our neighbor. We should plan for their good. And this is what it means when you love someone, right? I mean, when you love someone, you're committed to their good. That's what love is. It's a commitment to the good of another. And is this not what God does for us? You know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. You know, love is seeking the good of another. Jeremiah 29, 11. You all love this passage. You have it on a plaque at your home or some stationery. You like this passage. It's a great passage. 29, 11. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for peace, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We love that verse. Because it talks about God's heart for His people. You know, God desires to give His people a future and a hope. 
Peace, not evil. This is what God's giving. This is God's plan for His people. So if we are God's people, should we not have that same plan and desire? In other words, when you look around to your neighborhood and your city, you should, you should be thinking, uh, I have a plan for you, neighbors, for peace, not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Because I am God's child. And this is what the Father wants for His people, for His world. And this is what I should want as His child. So we should not plan evil against our neighbors, but we should have plans for their good to give them a future and a hope. Let me give you one example of what this could look like. There could be a billion examples, but this is just one I ran across. Back in 2002, there was a man named Dino, and he had a neighbor named Mark. And they were a very interesting pair. Uh, Dino explains that Mark was six foot nine, a truck driver for over 35 years. Uh, he was the kind of guy that would walk into a party and everyone would look at him because he was almost scary looking. He was so big. But despite their differences, you know, these neighbors that lived next to each other, uh, you had this tall, heavy rocker, truck driving Mark and this bubbly, outgoing neighbor, Dino. And they just, but they got along. They just had a mutual understanding and they were able to live next to each other peacefully. But when word traveled to Dino in 2005 that his neighbor Mark was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, Dino saw he needed someone by his side. And he says, I just knew something just clicked that I would just be there. And it says, for more than 400 hours between the month of June and Mark's passing in November... That's what Dino did. He visited his neighbor, cleaned his house, paid his bills, did his laundry, and was just a friend to talk to during a difficult time. And after a five-month battle with cancer, Mark passed away in November 2015. And while he says while uh, he knew Mark was ready, Dino still misses his friend, playing back old voicemails from Mark and rereading old text messages. You know, what I love about the story, though, is this is a man who ex- exhibited neighborly love. He had a plan for the good of his neighbor. Uh, he got involved in something that was overwhelming, really, uh, but yet he stepped in and he sought the good of his neighbor, Mark. And I love it because it requires intentionality. It requires intentionality. If I were to ask you, What is your plan for the good of your neighborhood? What would you say? What is your plan? You're probably caught off guard by that question because if you're like me, I tend to wait until an opportunity to do good reveals itself before I respond. I usually wait till something comes to my attention before I react. And so I tend to be, and maybe you as well, uh, if you're like me, I tend to be a more of a reactive Christian instead of a proactive Christian. You know, I react to the need, and I, I may want to meet the need if I can, or try to steer someone to a place where they can have their needs met. But I don't know if I'm really someone who's proactively looking for the needs or 
proactively planning for the good of my neighbors? Am I going to look for the need or am I waiting to the need to find me and then I'll just respond? And so for you, think about this. You know, are you a reactive Christian only or do you have a plan for the good of your neighbors, your community? Are you seeking to help people experience the love of God, the shalom of God, the peace of God by even meeting practical needs of those around you? See, if people are going to, to get a taste of who God is, then we need to be proactive. You know, we need to go and seek out the needs. We need to, we need to have an idea of what the, the community could be. Look for the brokenness. Don't wait for the brokenness to come to you. Look for the brokenness and seek to apply God's love to that place. We want to be proactive. And not only should we plan for the good, like verse 29 says, we should also, like verse 30 says, should avoid contending with those who have done us no harm. Now this verb contend is used in many places in the scripture. And one place that helps us understand what this verb means is found in Genesis 26. And I'll just sum it up. Genesis 26, 17 through 22 if you want to read it later. But basically Isaac is going out in the valley of Gerar and he is trying to dig up wells that Abraham, his father, had dug up in previous years. And they'd been covered up from, for different reasons. And so, or the Philistines covered them up. So Isaac's going back to redig the well so he could have water to, to water his herd, right? And his family. And so he, go, he would go dig up a well that his father Abraham had originally dug. And he dug up the well, found water. Well, then the herdsmen of Gerar, uh, it says, started contending with him. Saying, hey, that water's ours. And so then Isaac moved on, found another well that Abraham had dug, had been covered up. So he dug that well, found water. And then these herdsmen came over to that well and said, hey, that's ours. They started contending with Isaac. So then Isaac went and found another place, dug up a well, found water. And then it says, verse 21, Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he, came, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved on from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So to contend means to quarrel, to fight. And so Isaac, you know, he could have really just hunkered down at one of those wells and just had it out. But he said, you know, I'm just going to move on to this other well. And they contended with him there. So they just moved on to another well and finally found a place where they could live at peace with those in Gerar. And, you know, avoiding um, quarreling uh, takes some wisdom in discernment, Right? I mean, I was sitting with some of our deacons the other day, and we were just talking about uh, our culture and how there are several issues in our culture that our culture lifts up as good and right that are contrary to God's will. And so the question was, how do you, what do you do about that? You know, how do you speak into that? How do you deal with that while at the same time representing Jesus well? And that requires a lot of wisdom and discernment. And so the questions that were raised, and maybe these are some of the questions that have been raised in your mind. Um, when should I contend with someone? You know, 
When should you enter conflict with someone? Sometimes conflict's appropriate, and you should. But when should I do it? Or this may hit closer to home with some of you. When should you disagree with somebody on Facebook? <laughs> when should you make that post? You, know, you and I need to be wise in how we engage our neighbors, both in person and on social media. And we need to be careful that we do not get sidetracked by secondary issues. It doesn't mean secondary issues are not important, but we need to be careful in how we respond to people that, what I'm saying is we want to be careful that we don't uh, eclipse the main issue by focusing on secondary issues. Because let me tell you something. We are not at war with our neighbors. We're not at war with our culture. The church is not at war with the world. The church is in the world to see as many people as possible come to know the love of God in Christ. That's why we're here. We're not at war with the world. We're on a peace-seeking mission to help people experience the peace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. We're on a mission, a rescue mission in the world to reach people for Christ. And the Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 12, 18. He says, if, it, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And this includes people that we don't agree with. And so if we want to pursue peace and we want our neighbors to experience the peace of God as well. And, th- and this is why we, we need to be careful. I'm not saying that we should not have debate and discussion about secondary issues ethical issues, etc. I think we should, but we have to be careful how we do it. Because we should always be thinking about how we're representing Christ. Because He's the main issue. And I love the way the Apostle Paul did ministry. If you read about the Apostle Paul's ministry in the New Testament, you see that the Apostle Paul always kept the main thing the main thing. And so when he went into a non-Christian culture... Among, among a people that, are, that did not know Christ, he kept the focus on the main thing. Jesus, his life, death, resurrection. That's where he was going. That's what he wanted to get to. Because he realized that non-Christians are going to live like non-Christians. And their hope in the world is the same as your hope. And that is, it's not behavioral change. It's heart change. And that only happens through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul kept the main thing the main thing. Bringing people back to Christ. Bringing people back to the gospel. And so before you contend with someone, before you write that post on Facebook, you know, before you send that letter, before you send that email, before you make that phone call, think about this. One, are you seeking the good of your neighbor? Are you seeking the good of your neighbor? And two... If you say, send, or post your comment, will it, help you, will it help your neighbor see Jesus clearer? Or will it help your neighbor see their need for Jesus clearer? Because we want to keep the main thing the main thing and not contend with our neighbors um, without pointing them to Jesus Christ. And so if you want your neighbor to experience the shalom of God, if we want our neighbors to experience the shalom of God, then we must be willing to help our neighbor 
if it's in our ability to help them. And two, we must be intentional in planning for the good of our community, for our neighbors. And this is what it looks like to create a culture of life. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word and how it just is very practical. It challenges us at at the daily level. Uh, These daily interactions we have with people um, that require discernment, that require godly wisdom uh, to navigate. How should we help? What are the needs? Uh, How can I walk alongside this person? Uh, What do they need most? How do I disagree with someone while at the same time showing them love and pointing them to Jesus? All these questions, Lord, just pray for guidance. We ask your Holy Spirit would guide us as we um, continue to grow wiser in your word and through the uh, community of these believers here. Because like the Apostle Paul, Lord, we want to keep the main thing the main thing. We want to we want, if anything, it's a stumbling block. We want Jesus to be the stumbling block. And Lord, I just pray for wisdom for our church family as we seek to engage Augusta uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to show them the love of Christ, to be salt and light in this place. Lord, give us wisdom as we speak, as we write letters, as we make phone calls, as we post things on, on social media. Um, and Lord, help us to have a plan for the good of our neighborhood. Help us to really think through proactively how we can be a blessing to those around us. Because surely we have been blessed by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.